Welcome to another Sunday service, the first Sunday service of the second half of the year. As we move, you just be sleeping and you'll be waking up. You'll be sleeping and you'll be waking up. And you'll be taking it for granted. And time will just be passing. This is how we slept and woke up and slept and woke up. And from a child, you became an adult or a teenager. Rather. And from a teenager, you, you are becoming an adult or you are already an adult. From an adult, you become an old adult. <laughs> Amen. Time just passes. Our Father, we thank you for today. We give you praise. We thank you for your hand upon our lives. We say, may you be praised in Jesus' name. Father, as we go into your word, as we look at your word, I pray that you speak to your children this morning in Jesus' name. And help us to be able to learn and help us to imbibe everything that we hear today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. This month we are starting with the theme or the topic I titled Biblical Prosperity. Amen. Biblical Prosperity. Today, I'm just here to introduce this topic. And over the course of the month of July, we're going to be listening to different people who will speak to us about biblical prosperity. But today, I've titled my own segment, at least if this is the only segment I will take, I'm not sure. But I've titled this segment, The Burning Questions. The Burning What? Questions. What are the questions about biblical prosperity? When I was giving us some tips or a tidbit or insights into this topic, one of the things I said was that biblical prosperity, like a lot of topics, there are extremes to every concept or every idea or every nugget of the faith. So there are people who have treated biblical prosperity as a separate doctrine outside of every other thing that the Bible talks about and looks at it from just a physical aspect. Okay, so when they hear prosper or prosperity, they think wealth, and riches, and money. Amen. And there are people that have focused on that and focused on it too much to the point of theft. But you see, this phenomenon or this thing that has happened has also brought another set of people who are on the opposite side of the scale, who don't even want to hear about prosperity. That if you want to talk about prospering or prosperity, you're automatically labeled as a, as a false preacher or a teacher, or as an opportunist, someone that just wants to make money off people. They don't even want to hear what you have to say. Some of those people is because they've been burnt or they know people that have been burnt in some way or the other. And when I say burnt, I mean that I've been victims to exploitative teachings on this subject. And because they've seen that happen to somebody else, they just believe that everything is what is wrong. So if you want to explore this topic in terms of critical and logical thinking, when we title it the burning questions, there are some questions we have to ask ourselves. And the first question we have to ask ourselves is, does it exist? Because every single thing that we're going to talk about under biblical prosperity hangs on whether or not it actually exists. If it doesn't exist, then this entire topic is a waste. 
So the first question is, does biblical prosperity exist? And because we say it's biblical prosperity, the only person or thing that can give us the answer is the Bible. Right? So let's open our Bibles to 3 John chapter 1. Third John chapter 1, I'll read verse 2. It says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. If you don't know what prospereth means, prospereth means prospers. So, there are other versions that would say, Beloved, I pray that above all things you will prosper and be in health, be in good health, even as your soul prospers. That's what you would see in Bibles that speak your modern day English, or something in that variation. So, at the very least, we can say that it exists, right? It exists because if it doesn't exist, John will not be talking about it. The book of 3 John was written at about the last two decades of the first century of the church. So you see, the body of Christ, the church was born on when Jesus died on the cross. Because the Bible says in the temple, the veil tore into two. What is the church? The church is that we can all gather and we have free access to God. That we don't need a special priest to come and make sacrifice on our behalf. That's why we are here. If Jesus did not die, we can't gather here. Who are we gathering onto? We're gathering onto him. So the church was born on the cross. But the church was gathered in the book of Acts. When the day of Tem Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came upon them and it was empowered and they were empowered. And from that time, we start to count the age of the first church. And everything we read after the book of Acts till the end of the New Testament comprises of the first century of what? Of the church. That's the first hundred years of the church. And the reason why it's important for me to say this is because John is popularly known as the last apostle. Everybody else at the time that he was writing these things, at the later part of his years, he was an elder now. He was no more the young boy that laid on the laps on the, on the breast of Jesus Christ. He was now an old man and all his contemporaries had died was the last apostle that saw the Lord that was alive. And he's writing here about what? Prospering. Which means that prospering was a concept that was understood by the people that he was writing to. And the church at this point was at least 80 years old. So prosperity was not a strange concept to the church at that time. If not, he will have to explain himself, right? But he didn't explain himself. He said it in a greeting. Meaning that he knows that the people that are reading this greeting or hearing this greeting know that, okay, this is what he is talking about. So I guess the second question we should ask ourselves is, what does it mean? The word what? Prosper. What does it mean? It's an English word. But it's an English word that was actually made popular by the church. Because I'm fairly certain that if I ask you what does prosper mean, define it in English language, you might have some difficulty. 
What does it mean to prosper? You might have an idea of what it means. You might be able to infer what somebody is talking about when the person says, man, you will prosper. If your pastor says, you will prosper in Jesus' name, you say what? Amen. But what, what does that word mean? I'm not going to go into the exact Greek pronunciation or spelling. But I'm going to tell you that that word in Greek, and that word appears only three times in the entire New Testament. And in Greek, what it means is to succeed on a journey. That is actually what it means. To succeed on a what? On a journey or in a journey. Basically, it represents the successful completion of an endeavor. That's what it means to prosper. And as you're listening to this, you might be disappointed because that it has nothing to do with money. <laughs> but stay with me. It signifies what? The successful completion of what? Of an endeavor. That is what it means to prosper. It was used when people talked about a journey, a trip. I want us to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 16, 2. I just want to show you something. First Corinthians sixteen two. First Corinthians sixteen two. This is the second time it was used in the New Testament. The first was in the book of Romans chapter one verse ten, but we won't read that because of time. Well, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God has what? Has prospered him, that there will be no gatherings when I come. Now, I'll, ex I'll explain what was happening here. In the book of Acts, at some point in time, a prophet called Prophet Agabus, he prophesied, we don't know much about him. We only know that he was a prophet. And he said two major things throughout his ministry that we are aware of. The first was that he said that if Paul should enter Jerusalem, he will get arrested. And he got arrested. The second was that there will be a great famine in the land. And nobody will have anything to eat. Those are the two prophecies we know he ever gave. And so essentially, when they heard that prophecy from Agabus, what the church decided to do was the, the church decided to gather materials from what? From these new churches that were being created everywhere. Hmm? So they decided to gather materials. So essentially, the church in Corinthians, the church in the Ephesus, the church in Thessalonica, the churches that existed in the then Gentile world, who had more resources to give, were now donating to the church in Jerusalem. And it was Paul's job to what? To take these things from those churches to Jerusalem so that the church would be able to survive because a famine was coming. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that every week on the first day of the week, what should they do? They should lay by him in store. What that means is that Every week, they should gather their profits, what they want to give out, what they are willing to give out. And he says what? Has God has prospered him? 
so that when he comes, they will not need to start gathering again. He will just come and pack whatever is in the store and he will go. But what I want to focus on is, is that phrase, as God has prospered him. What Paul is saying here is that every week, on the first day of the week, you will gather what God has done as you have completed what? The journey. Every week, as you have had a successful completion of the journey of that week, you will now what? Lay down what you are willing to give. And that's what is always communicated by this word. Always. So success and completion of what? An endeavor. But that's not the only thing that this verse tells us. First Corinthians chapter, I mean, Third John chapter 1 verse 2. Back to our main text. It also says that what? I wish above all things that thou mayest what? Prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. So John is separating the person from the person's soul. Don't you think that's interesting? So if I say, I wish that you would eat rice today and chicken, even as your sister eats rice. Are you your sister? No. You are two different people. So John went to the length of separating the person from the person's soul. Meaning that John is addressing two different aspects of a man. He said, I wish above all things that what you prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. So we need to ask ourselves, who is you? What is your soul? And what is good health? Because we will see that in this verse, John actually covers the entirety of man. I want us to start with health first. You might think to yourself, health is just not being sick. But you see, the word here, health, covers every physical need of a man. Because it's not just about healing from sickness. It is about everything that you need to sustain yourself in this body. Because if you cannot feed yourself, will you be healthy? No. If you're dying of starvation somewhere, will you be healthy? No. So essentially, that word health covers provision. If you were living under the streets, or on the street rather, under the bridge, can you confidently say that you're living in health? When the weather, when it's hot, when it's cold, is beating on your skin, can you confidently say that you're living in health? No. So it covers shelter. It covers clothing. It covers every single provision that is needed for a human being to be able to attest and say, okay, I am in good health. It's beyond just prevention. It's beyond just healing from sickness. That word health covers every single thing that has to do with a man's physical state. And as a, as a result, 
when people talk about prosperity, what they tend to talk about the most is only this word health. Because financial provision is under health. Eating and drinking is what is under health. Having clothes to wear is under is under health. Being able to relax and rest is what is under health. They are all physical in nature. And we've limited our definition or our description of prosperity to the one word in that entire verse that doesn't even have prosper attached to it. It's just implied. But you see, John is not just wishing them bodily good. He's also wishing them good for their soul. And what that means is that God also wants emotional health for you. He wants your mind to be well. What is the point in having money and suffering dementia? What is the point in being rich and having mental health issues? What is the point in having provision and not being able to sleep at night because of insomnia? What is the point in having cars and having amnesia? This is health. Health also covers our mind. Health also covers our emotional state. He doesn't want you to suffer through loneliness in this life. He doesn't want you to suffer depression. It's health. That is the health of the soul. That is what it means for the soul of a man to prosper. The soul of a man is the invisible part. The part that we cannot see. The things that have to do with the way we think. And what we feel. And God cares about it too. He also wants us to what? To prosper in that area. And that's the soul. And finally, he wants you to what? To prosper. Because the first thing he says is, I wish above all things that you prosper. And be in health even as your soul prospers. That you is your spirit. It's the real you. And prospering in your spirit has to do with the state of your relationship with what? With God. So John is saying that I want you and God to successfully complete what? The journey. That's what it means when he says he wants you to prosper. And be in health throughout your life in this world even as your soul also what successfully completes the journey of what of life this is biblical prosperity in its completion that is the actual definition of biblical prosperity and you see how different it is from the riches narrative that we have. Don't get me wrong. God has no problem with you having money. God doesn't just want you to be defined by money. He doesn't want your life to be defined by what? By what you have. And that's the simple difference. So when we talk about biblical prosperity, it's the whole of a man 
It's not just one small aspect of it. If you go through scripture, you will find out that there are three instances, particularly in the New Testament, where someone is described as rich. And those three instances were negative. And it's not because riches is a problem. It is actually because those people, what defined them was the wealth that they had. The first is the rich fool, the parable of the rich fool, who said what? He would rest and lounge, and he says, my soul, rest today. You've gathered enough. Let's increase our barns, because we have so much. And the Bible says that in that parable, God called him and said, thou rich fool, I'm demanding your soul from you tonight. That's the first person. The second was the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus said there was once a rich man and there was a man called what? Lazarus. Lazarus ate at the feet of what? Of the rich man. And the man favored even his dogs to Lazarus. And Lazarus died and went to heaven. And the rich man died and went to what? Went to hell. That's the second story. The third story is the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to what? To have eternal life. And the Bible says that when the conversation ended, Jesus said, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, and what? And follow me. And the Bible says the man was extremely sad, and he went back sorrowful. And Jesus said, it will be difficult for those who trust in their riches to enter what? The kingdom of God. But you see, the problem is not that they were rich. The problem was that they w their lives were defined by what? By what they had. And that is not prosperity. Because prosperity has to do with your soul. The Bible says that God gives riches and has no sorrow to it. That you will not be rich and going through emotional turmoil. That you will not have to sell your soul to get what God has for you. So the description of, of prosperity in scripture is perfect. Because that's God's desire for us. Today we're going to look at the example of a man really quickly and I'm going to run down some things that happened to the man before we close. And it's not a man that you associate with prosperity in the Bible. His name is Daniel. And when you're thinking about the people who were rich in the Bible, you might not think of Daniel. <laughs> you might think of Abraham. You might think of Solomon, obviously. Because his name is everywhere. But I want to read the story of Daniel from Daniel chapter 2. And I'm going to run through it very quickly. I'll pick some sections of it so that we don't spend too much time. It says, and in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the charlatans to show to the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, 
you shall be caught in pieces, and you shall and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, and shall receive gifts from me, reward and great honor. Therefore show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Verse 7, they answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show thee the interpretation of it. And the kings answered and said, I know of certainty that you would gain the time, because ye see the thing is gone from me. But if you will not make it known unto me and the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me, till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall show you the interpretation thereof. So essentially, Daniel was faced with a situation here where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar did not remember what the dream was. And Nebuchadnezzar said to his wise men and to his magicians and to his astrologers, he called them together and said, okay, I dreamt a dream. And I don't remember what this dream means. And they said, tell us the dream and we'll tell you the interpretation. And he said, I don't remember the dream. Tell me what I dreamt. And also tell me what the interpretation. And this caused a huge problem. Because essentially they went back and forth about how, king, tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. And the king said, no, you want to deceive me. You want to lie to me the way you always lie to me. Tell me what I dreamt and tell me what it means. And the thing got to a head where the king made a decree and said he's going to kill all of them. If what? If he did not tell them the dream. And that's when Daniel got involved. And the Bible tells us that Daniel essentially went to God in prayer with his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were able to get what? The interpretation of the dream. Now, so they got both the dream and the interpretation from God. And I want to just read that a little bit. And I want to read from the verse 19. It says, Then the secret, then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep secret things. He knoweth who is what is in darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hath given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. If we go to verse 46. I want to read to you Nebuchadnezzar's reaction when he was told the dream. The Bible says that then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an abolition and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of what? Of secrets, seeing that thou could reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave many great gifts, and made him ruler over all the province of Babylon, and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of what? 
of the king. We're still talking about prosperity, and I want to run down the attributes of a prosperous man. The first attribute of a prosperous man is not something that you might think. But the first attribute of a prosperous man is consecration unto God. And I'll explain unto you why. Daniel was able to interpret this dream because of something that had happened in Daniel chapter 1. The Bible says that Daniel chose not to defile himself with the king's meats because he was a slave carried into captivity. And because he and his friends chose not to defile themselves, God gave Daniel wisdom and understanding in all what? In all dreams and visions. If Daniel did not have that gift from God, Daniel would not have been able to interpret this dream. A lot of times when we're in church, we are taught about, we are taught about opportunities that God creates for us. But we are taught about opportunities that God creates for us from the secular, motivational speaking, success books point of view. How many of us have heard in church, God would create an opportunity for his children that you can walk? Who has not heard it before? Something that we hear, and you think to yourself, maybe you're thinking about normal things. No. God would always create a situation that is impossible for anybody to solve so that he can show himself through you. And it's consistent with the whole of the Bible. But you see, he can't show himself through you if you've not decided to commit yourself to him. Example number one is Daniel, right? Give me one other examples. Solomon. So the Bible says that Solomon was the wisest man on earth, right? And it was that wisdom that drew everybody to him. But Solomon had an encounter with God in a dream. The Bible says that Solomon sacrificed a thousand offerings unto God. And when he did, God encountered him in a dream and asked him and told him, tell me what you want, what you want, and I will give it unto you. And Solomon didn't ask for wealth, he didn't ask for anything. What he asked for was what? He asked for wisdom. And you know, people will teach and say, oh, the reason why God decided to make Solomon the wisest man on earth is because Solomon didn't ask for wealth, he asked for wisdom. Wrong. Or half-truth. Because what Solomon specifically asked for was the wisdom to rule these great people who are what? Who are your own? The heart that Solomon had towards God was, give me the ability to be able to do this work for you because you are the one that puts me here. Solomon wasn't looking at himself as a king. He was looking at himself as someone that did not have any ability. That request was an act that showed his consecration unto what? Unto God. That I am for you. The fact that I am a king is just happenstance. I am just a vessel for you to rule these people through. I don't know how to do it by myself. And God said, because this is what you requested for, I will give you that wealth. And I would also give you wisdom above what? All men. Solomon did not need to be the wisest man on earth to rule Israel. There had been kings before him. David was not the wisest man on earth. He did a pretty decent job. So did the prophets before. Samuel was the president of Israel for a while. He was a prophet. He wasn't the wisest man on earth. Neither was Moses. But this wisdom that God gave him now brought the whole world to what? To his feet. 
God gave him something that nobody else had, and God started to increase Solomon because he had first consecrated himself unto God. And God gave him peace on all sides. And for a very long time in Solomon's life, he didn't have to fight any battle. He had a kingdom of complete peace. How did he lose it? He lost it because he started to gather the daughters of other kings in marriage. And that wasn't the problem. The problem was that he started to now imbibe their gods and build altars for the gods of every single wife that he was what? He was marrying. And God said, I'm going to take that peace away. And Solomon started to fight battles. Did the Bible say Solomon became poor? No. Because prosperity is beyond just money. It's also what? That peace that he enjoyed, that peace in his soul, the fact that he could go to bed and wake up and not think another king is coming to attack his kingdom, is prosperity too. He was what? A prospered man because he was settled body, spirit, and soul. And when God took that prosperity away from him because he had defiled himself, he was no longer consecrated unto God. He didn't take it away by making him poor. He took away the peace. And other kings started to come and invade Israel one by one. And they started to take all the wealth away from what? From the kingdom. Example number two. If you go through scripture, time will not permit us. Joseph, Abraham, all these people, God created opportunities for them to solve problems that nobody else could what? Could solve based on something that God had deposited inside them because they had decided to consecrate their lives to him. And that's the first criteria for prosperity. You can't skip it. The second is that you have to have a heart of compassion and mercy. A heart of what? Compassion and mercy. You can't be selfish. If you go through the story of Abraham, you would see that Abraham got a lot of wealth from what he got from the spoils of war. But what led him to that war? His nephew Lot was captured. And you might think to yourself, Lot is his nephew now. He had to go and rescue him. No, he didn't. He and Lot did not part on the best of terms. Did they? They did not. They fought because their men were fighting. And Abraham was a man of peace. And Abraham is his uncle. And Abraham said, okay, look at the land. The good one is here. The what? This is the one that is here. Choose the one you want. And Lot chose the good one that was close to Sodom. And I'm sure in Lot's mind, you know, my uncle doesn't have sense. Even if he wanted to send me away, he should have even picked first. Because their men are started clashing. And Abraham was the one with the covenant of God on his life. Lot was prospering because he was in Abraham's house. And Lot did not recognize it. And Lot left. And Lot entered trouble. If it was you, note that you are not a king, go. You're just a man that has what? Servants. And another kingdom invaded and took Lot away. Abraham went to fight a kingdom with his, his house servants and he won. What did he have? Was it money? No. He had God's presence with what? With him. And it was at that point that he got spoils of war. And he paid tithes to Melchizedek and the covenant activated. And in the next chapter, God started to move with him in a different dimension. 
What happened with Daniel here? It wasn't his business. When the king said he was going to kill all the Chaldeans, Daniel wasn't there. Yes, Daniel was a slave that the king has recognized to be one of the children of wisdom, but he didn't have any status or hierarchy. Because if he had any status or hierarchy, when the king was asking for the interpretation of the dream, Daniel had been in that meeting. He was not in that meeting because it's not his business. And when he heard of it, he could as well have turned his back and said, well, if the king wants to kill them, he should kill them. It's not my problem in life. Let me be going. But he had a heart of what? Of compassion. That's how we could recognize that opportunity. And he said, okay, plead with the king and tell him to give us some time. That the dream of what will be interpreted. And third thing is a belief in God. A belief that God has the power to what? To do it. Because like I said, this opportunity is not something that you're going to reason out with your head. Amen. Amen. If, if it's something that you've identified and you see that you can figure it out on your own, then it means that it's not an opportunity from God and it's not going to lead to prosperity. There's nothing wrong with that. Amen. And what I mean by that is the Bible says that a laborer is worthy of what? Of his wages. If you work hard, you would earn based on what you work for. It is also scriptural. It is not against the Bible. But you see that thing that God will do for you, that he will deliver what is not yours to you. The way was Joseph in earthly terms qualified to be the prime minister of Egypt? No. Was Daniel here qualified to be one of the leaders of, e of Babylon? No. In earthly terms, no. Because he's not a citizen. He's a slave. For that thing that men will say you don't deserve to come into your hand, God is going to create an opportunity that only him can solve. The only difference is that he will solve it through you to bring out his what? His glory. That's what he did with Daniel here. That's what he did with Joseph. Created a situation that nobody could solve except what? Except Joseph. And that's what he always does. But you have to have a belief in God that he can actually do it. If you are relying on yourself, then that thing is not from God. If you can use your brain to calculate what you call a miracle, it's not a miracle. God doesn't work like that. The fourth and fifth I'll take together, which is a life of prayer and a community of like-minded individuals. So Daniel, after he requested and said, okay, give us time, he didn't just go and sit down. He went and what? He went to pray. And he didn't go alone, he went with his friends. And sometimes I sit and look at this and I just imagine the conversation and I think to myself, this is probably not the first thing that these four people are afraid about. They've probably been praying together a lot. This was just, just at this time, it was Daniel that brought the prayer points. Another time it might have been Shadrach. Another time it might have been Meshach. True relationships are built on spiritual foundation for godly people. For godly people, though, it's the truth. There are things that have happened in my life that I have not, I have not been able to understand until recently. But if I can call someone and agree with the person and say, okay, let's pray together about this thing, then the depth of our relationship is not really there. Doesn't mean I hate the person. Doesn't mean we can't talk. It just means that we don't speak the same language because the core of my life is Jesus. 
Every single thing in my life, I'll root it back to him, no matter what. So if I have a challenge and a problem, my natural instinct is to go and pray about it first before discussing and calculating it. And if somebody does not get that and can't join me in that, then I can't truly say that we are together. And this applies to every form of relationship. So he wasn't just a man of prayer. He recognized those that were around him that were also like him. Because they were not the only slaves in Babylon. They were not the only Israelites. They were not the only people there. Next thing that you have to have is you have to have lips of thanksgiving. Lips of what? Of thanksgiving. And things that we need, we have to really reevaluate and see where is this thing actually coming from. Because God would always do things for his glory, so we have to give the glory to him. Daniel had longevity in the palace, but the reason why Daniel lived long enough to be able to see four of the kings that passed through that land, even when the kingdom changed from the Chaldeans to the Babylonians to the Medo-Persians, when Darius became king, Daniel was still in that kingdom. Daniel was still the right-hand man of every king. And the reason why was because in every situation, any solution he's bringing to the table, he would always remind them and say, it's not me, oh. I will tell you what the handwriting on the wall is, but it's not me. It is what? It's God. In our lives, we have to learn to redirect always. If there's anything in your life that you've ever thought that is of you and from you, if you cannot redirect that back to God, if you do not recognize that no matter what good you see in yourself, it's God that permitted that you have that good, you won't get more. It just won't happen. And that's the next attribute. The next that we're going to look at is a practice of appreciation and recognition. A practice of what? Appreciation and recognition. This is something that is missing in a lot of believers' lives. A lot of people practice what I call opportunistic Christianity or spiritual 419. What I mean by that is the Bible says here that after Daniel interpreted the dream and they gave him all these gifts and all that, what did he do? He requested that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be placed in what? In provinces across the land. He did not forget his friends. He recognized that, yes, he might have been the one that brought the answer to the king, but he wasn't the only one that prayed to God for that thing to what? To happen. We have so many spiritual opportunists in the church. They just want their own. Once it click like this, everybody else. Bye-bye. And it's wrong. Because that's not what God wants us to be. There's a man in the story of Joseph, and it was the wine bearer of the king. And the Bible says that Joseph was in prison. And two people had a dream. The baker and the wine bearer. And they both came to Joseph, and Joseph interpreted both their dreams. And said, in three days, one of you will die, will be beheaded. And in three days, one of you will be released. And he told the one that will be released, when you are released, oh, <laughs> remember who? Remember me. 
Joseph was not even thinking of any position. He's, he just wants to go back home. Because remember, he's a foreigner. He's just like, let them bring me out of here. I did nothing. Just appeal to the king that I am innocent of my crimes so I can go home. And the copier forgot for two years. How will you forget for two years? Do you forget? Just abandon him. And if Pharaoh didn't dream a dream, sorry for Joseph, he's just going to be there. Now, I'm saying that in a human sense because the truth is this. God will never forget his Josephs. Even if you do. The cup bearer forgot him, but God did not. And God did what he wanted to do. In the end, who was greater? The guy remained the cup bearer now. Joseph became Zoga. God will never forget his Josephs. If Daniel did not mention these three men, what they did is recorded before God. It might take some time, but God will still honor them. If Daniel went before Nebuchadnezzar and did not what, did not mention them, he just chilled and took all the glory. God will still honor them. It might take time. It might take a little longer, but he would honor them. Because God does not forget his own. And God doesn't expect us to forget his own either. So if you are a Joseph and someone has forgotten you, don't worry, God remembers. Amen. And if you have Josephs in your life that God has brought across your path in the past, and you have forgotten them, don't. Those people that prayed with you and you know that they stood by you before that thing that you wanted to happen happened. It now happened, you now did as if they didn't exist. It's wrong. That's opportunistic Christianity. There's a lot of criticism for leaders and ministers of God in this country today. Some of it is warranted. True. But the other side is also true, that they suffer a lot. I'm not saying it because I'm pastor. It's just the truth. I've heard too many stories. <laughs> too many stories. And the pastor prayed and prayed. And once he prayed and the miracle came, the person left the church. <laughs> it happens. Not everything is black and white. Just because one side happens doesn't mean the other side isn't true. Is God going to abandon that man or woman of God? No. But to you that do not know that where you drew from, the tap that you drew from, that water one day will soon finish. <laughs> and that's how people live. But God doesn't want us to be like that. Prosperous people don't act like that. You won't last. You might hit a big bang. Life is, life is long. You could be a millionaire in your 30s and 40s and have nothing in your 50s and 60s if you live that long. This life is not as... Amen. It's true. The entire idea of a quick fix or fix w quick wealth doesn't really exist. Because for you to last in life, you just need to have some things in your life that are consistent. And you have to have a life of appreciation. And the final thing before we rise up to close the service is a heart of selflessness and contentment. A heart of what? Of selflessness and contentment. And this is one of the things that hit me the most when I first read this. The Bible says that after he requested those things for his people, the Bible says, but Daniel remained at the gate 
what that means is that Daniel did not request to be put in a new what? In a new office. Or say, okay, now I've interpreted it, now I'm here. Please clear out that person's accommodation. Let me go and what? Let me go and live there. He was content with what he was given at time. And he stayed at the gate of what? Of the king. That's how you last. That when God has given you what is your own, you don't look at what is not your own and say, but like, I also deserve that one too. So it's not a coincidence that when Nebuchadnezzar died and his son became what? The king. If you read that story in Daniel 3, the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar's son went and took the things from the altar of God and was using it to party, the drinks. And a handwriting wrote on what? On the wall. And nobody knew what it was. And his mother, who was Nebuchadnezzar's wife, now said, there's a man called Daniel. Let's go and get him, because he has what spirit of wisdom, spirit of the gods are in him. And the first thing that struck me was, Daniel was not in that party either. He's always not there. They always go and what? Call him from where he is, because he was content. He wasn't seeking position. He didn't want to rise up the ranks. He simply rose up the ranks. He rose up the ranks by what? By favor. Because constantly, the solution to the issues of the land were in his hand. But it's not like he was parading himself everywhere, saying, pick me, and I'm the one that can help you. He was not in that party either. They had to go and find what? They had to find him. You have to be content. And if you can practice these things, in no time, God will lift you up. It might take some time. But he will. If you really look through everything that we've discussed from being a consecrated person, someone dedicated to God, to what we just talked about now, you will find out that for a lot of us, we still have holes in our lives that are missing. And yet we want to prosper. Prosperity is not just in the physical like we discussed. It's the totality of your being, being at peace, so you can complete this journey on earth with God. Can we rise up to pray?